0: so can i just say for i think we are gonna agree on this but like fritz deserved what he got like he fucked around he found out
1: like a hundred percent
0: i did not cry i like clapped when yeah. that happened i was like go go monster <laughs>
1: <laughs> right Welcome friends to episode 234 of the Ink to Film podcast where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week we discuss James Whale's 1931 film Frankenstein. Joining us
2: this week in our old abandoned watchtower is Rachel K. Jones. Rachel is a World Fantasy Award nominee and Tiptree Award honoree whose fiction has appeared in dozens of venues worldwide, including multiple Year's Best Anthologies, Lightspeed Magazine, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Strange Horizons, and all four Escape Artist podcasts. Welcome back to the show, Rachel.
0: It's awesome to be back two weeks in a row.
1: Thanks again for joining us.
2: Yeah, you get the full experience, right? Like, this is this is really what we do. We, we read the book, and then we watch the movie, and it's, it's a journey, right? Like, you get to feel the journey of... Of the of, I don't know. Just like living with the literature and the book and the words, and then seeing some sort of adaptation. You know, every every time we do it, it's a little different.
0: It's kind of like being in the metaphorical basement of that watchtower you're talking about, and not being able <laughs> to get out. And so maybe by the end of this, you'll let open the door and let me go wander out in the world.
2: Oh no, were you trapped in there? <laughs> yeah, Fritz coming in? <laughs> All right. <laughs> You know, often we get different kinds of adaptations. We have ones that are very faithful. We have ones that are reimagined, but still the essence of the story is there. This felt like one of those where it was almost more inspired by. There are certain bones of the original story that I think are still there, but uh, the flesh and soul has been swapped out in true uh, Frankenstein fashion, and uh, this is a whole different monster.
1: They swapped a criminal brain in,
0: <laughs> abnormal brain.
1: Yeah, very abnormal. Yes. <laughs> so I, I love that we got the chance to cover this 1931 film. Um, I don't know your experience with uh, older classic film like this. I'd love to hear, Rachel, your your history with this film and just your experience going through and watching it as it's you know almost 100 years old now.
0: This was a really new experience for me. Um, I don't have a lot of experience watching movies that are this old um and so as a result i mean i found it a really unique and rewarding experience actually because like as an author like the there were some interesting plot decisions <laughs> that maybe i felt like made it um like a much simpler story and less complex than what mary shelley was doing in in the space of a full novel um you know i found a lot to appreciate it about it as a piece of um you know cinematic history and like the performance of you know, Boris Karloff is so incredibly iconic that even if, you know, you're not in the realm of film like I am, like, I mean, it's hard to avoid it and hard to not appreciate just what um, he did with that role. And the fact that like when people say Frankenstein, they think of this movie even more so than the book. So I that's just absolutely fascinating to me.
1: How about you, Luke? What, what was it like going back and watching a film like this?
2: Uh, so we've talked in the past about how I, I don't. I don't normally watch old black and white movies. I've seen a few, and uh, we've watched a few now for the podcast. And each time, I, I am sort of reminded that it, it, they're not a monolith. When I when I when I used to think back about like movies predating color. I imagine they were all kind of similar, it's not like a conscious thought. Just like subconsciously, I assume they're all they share certain characteristics, but they are all very different. Um, just like just like movies today, made by different people with different visions, different level of artistry. And um, I was I was impressed with certain things in this movie that that um, felt modern. It felt uh, sort of I don't know, like uh, ahead of their time, and I could see the influence. Uh, on filmmakers that are are working in the later years. Some that we've even covered on this podcast in particular I'll talk about. Um, So that was all super fascinating. I'd never seen this movie before. I'd seen like clips I think, you know, certain scenes but yeah, never actually watched the full thing. It's an hour and ten minutes and that also includes, like, a brief sort of opening introductory scene, uh, which was very unique. Um, it's one of the actors coming out onto a stage and warning you about the movie you're about to watch. <laughs> um, pretty cool, actually, um, but but very strange. But then, um, yeah, it's a, it's a tight hour 10, so there's not a lot of time to develop all of the story and nuance that was in the novel. So runtime alone i think forces this into a very different sort of movie um and then yeah it it felt to me like there was an attempt to make a horror film right like whereas whereas frankenstein uh the novel is sort of horror but really more remembered as a science fiction novel it had certainly frightening especially for the time 1800s um but this was like this is a horror movie um and it felt like uh the kind of thing that you would show on Halloween. Um, now, this was way back in the 1930s, but still, like it felt almost like, uh, uh, like a you would see a horror film today that is released in October, and they want you to go see it in that time of year. Like this felt like it was designed to be spooky and to thrill. And it's basically said in the introduction by the actor who comes out and says, "This may disturb you. This may horrify you," <laughs> um, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs>
1: it's it's also amazing because in the same way that mary shelley sort of invented this new genre this was still seen as a time where people weren't making horror films like quote-unquote horror films yeah so this is a science fiction film that is a horrific science fiction film
2: so you're saying this kind of helped create that genre it
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely did yeah and and i think we've talked a lot and i just love to talk about this because i'm nerdy about film history but how many times have i mentioned german expressionism on on this podcast yeah um this is so heavily influenced by German Expressionism. Films like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is like a, a good one to point to. And you can tell the way that it's shot, certain sort of gothic elements that you see within within the architecture and the lighting. The way that this movie sort of distills all that. This, along with Dracula, which released the same year, by the way. Oh, wow. um, Universal Pictures released... Dracula, and then with the success of Dracula, wanted to make a monster movie again, make Frankenstein, which is sort of what I think you're picking up on there, Luke, is that rather than making a Mary Shelley film, I think they tried to to make a monster film and sort of defined what would go on to become a horror film. So yeah, it's just interesting to think about this German expressionism continuing to pop up and what would eventually go to influence like film noir in the 40s and the 50s. And, and then you you get into your modern horror films, and so much is owed to these these older Universal films, and we'll talk more about that. But um, and and this film also just so happens to be very like German, in general. Their names are German. There's like Air, Herr, however you say that, Herr yeah. so and so, and and a lot of the architecture and like the normal buildings that you see in the in the town are it looks like a small German town, and so. Yeah. I felt like this was like kind of a distilled look at at German expressionism from from Americans because they're, you know, absorbing what's coming over from Germany.
2: That was going to be my question like was this an American made movie though? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh yeah, absolutely, man. I uh I so the one that I kept going to and you can tell me if the, if this connects, but uh we covered Sleepy Hollow and Tim Burton, and Tim Burton always has a very distinct sort of uh gothic flair to his to his filmmaking in that movie in particular. And there's even a scene in a uh at the end of that movie, if I'm remembering correctly, in a uh windmill that gets lit on fire. <laughs> <laughs> um and I was like, is this mo- is this actually an homage to this movie? Because it, it was so
1: similar. Yeah, it definitely is.
2: Yeah. And like just his way that he, he like his sets are often Surreal and I felt that way in that old abandoned watchtower where like the brick was like kind of warped It didn't really look like a real building. Um, but I felt like that was a style choice
1: Yeah, and that those sets are incredible like looking at the the laboratory and how big they are and the moving camera That was also sort of revolutionary for the time period We'll talk about James Whale a bit and and his style, you know taking influence from German expressionism and this moving camera but uh Those sets are exactly what I'm talking about. This sort of, if you look at the, there's like elongated architecture that's also like not structurally sound. They're like leaning a lot of times and jagged edges and things like that. And that's absolutely like Gothic inspired as well. I think if you asked Tim Burton, he would 100% cop to the fact that he was making homage to a film like this.
0: I thought the sets were incredible. It's something I I noticed that I thought really held up well, even after 100 years. Um, Does anyone know, by chance, if this movie was considered scary at the time it was made? Oh, yeah. Because, you know, the little content warning at the beginning, part of me was like, is this just like hype? or is this like really valid like you
1: know they they in the way that a lot of film you'll hear about the exorcist they had people passing out in the theater <laughs> and f- f- that kind of stuff like people freaking out this had that you wow. know in the 30s this was that for the 30s they had the combination of dracula and frankenstein like back to back and people were just like totally enthralled and they like some of course, had the thing where they're sort of like, is this real life? I-, I read stories about people like fainting and watching it and being completely horrified. And it is so funny to think about that because today it just feels quaint, like yeah. Yeah. just completely to think of an era where like someone goes to a movie theater and is so horrified by this.
2: I mean, there's and there's a certain kind of disgusting I, concept, right? Like the body and the you see the sewn flesh and the, the look on the face of the creature, like a lot of that is still pretty compelling even today. And I, I could see that being pretty upsetting to people who haven't had the experience of seeing all the stuff we've seen yeah. <laughs> nowadays. <Yeah. laughs> I, I go back to that. There's a story about one of the earliest films I think ever made. Where it's just like a, a train arriving at a, at a station or something.
1: Yeah, a train in the station or something like and, that.
2: And so, re- reportedly, show, show times were filled with people who would like flee the theater when it was happening because they thought it was like a train was going to. They thought them. the train was going to
1: burst through the screen. Yeah. yeah. Pretty amazing.
2: <laughs> Which is hilarious <laughs> to think about now, but yeah, I mean, it's a magic trick and people weren't used to it. So, I have a question before we get into everything else that I, I thought we could sort of noodle on a little bit. Um, this is one of the only movies I can think of where the creature in the movie is like commonly known as the wrong name right like (laughs) we we have had to catch ourselves several times at least I know I have (laughs) calling the monster Frankenstein and I'm wondering if that is only because it doesn't have a name but there are a lot of other movies where the creature is unnamed but then why does this monster get Get the name of its creator in people's minds. Like, why is that trans- transposition happening?
0: I have a theory. Um, this is based on nothing but my own brain, so my very <laughs> abnormal brain. Um, but um, my my thought when I was watching the film, especially, was that um, like Boris Karloff is such a scene stealer. Like, it's almost like when I watched it, it was the most significant thing about the movie was appreciating his performance and what he brought to that role. That I could almost see that like through a game of telephone that when you, there's a word Frankenstein and there's this feature you have associated with it. And like, that's kind of it. Like, of course you name the movie after the most interesting thing in the movie. And, you know, in some ways it was kind of Mary Shelley's mistake, (laughs) you know,
2: to call it Frankenstein when, you know. I'm wondering if this happened before the movie, like when people were referring to the book monster, did they often make this mistake? Or is this, was this a, uh, like you said, like a, a sort of a, something like occurred because of this film and people are telling their friends, Hey, go see Frankenstein. You're going to love the monster in this movie, Frankenstein. And somehow that, that yeah. connection got well, made.
0: Especially with Dracula in the mix. If that's really, you know, the same time period that, you know, Dracula's Dracula
2: the- and Frankenstein and Dracula is like the, the name of the monster. Yeah.
0: Best friends.
2: Yeah. You know? Maybe, maybe
1: it could have something to do with that. And one of the reasons that I think kind of makes sense is if you were to give, the monster a last name as it's sort of Victor Frankenstein's son, then it would still be a Frankenstein, right? Mm -hmm. In -hmm. a sense. But (laughs) I think another thing that that really solidified it for people was when the film Bride of Frankenstein released in 1935, it's literally called Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. So then they're making the decision to call the the monster Frankenstein.
2: Right, or were they reacting to what people already called it as? (laughs) good question.
1: That is a good question.
2: It doesn't
0: help that also maybe it helps that the word Frankenstein is kind of insert our lexicon as a word that means a patched together thing. So you have like your yeah. Frankensteinian, uh, you know, like dog. like Frankenweenie, is that the one? Like, <laughs> yes, <yeah, so laughs> Frank Franken Weenie. plus
2: anything. Speaking of yeah. Tim Burton, Tim Burton <laughs> yeah. totally, yeah. totally, completely
1: go. making a Frankenstein film right there with Frankenweenie.
2: You're right. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about how... You, with the Universal monsters that you talked about, that was something we heard was incredibly influential for Stephen King when we covered it. Um, and then we remember those Universal monsters
1: are in—he puts a lot of them in there. Yeah, the mummies in there, Wolfman's in there. Yeah, the Invisible Man, I think, is in there.
2: Yeah, because that was the stuff he grew up on, right, and was and frightened him so much. So it, it, we just talk about the lineage of things that would go on to affect horror as a genre. Right, because I I don't know that there's any more influential figure in horror, you know, in, in modern days than Stephen King, and if he was greatly influenced by Frankenstein, which goes all the way back to Mary Shelley, I don't know it's pretty cool when you see all these connective, the
1: connective tissue. Mm. So, mm. <laughs>
2: uh,
1: the I don't know about you guys, but growing up, I I feel like there were kids that would be on the playground that would reference this movie having not seen it. There's no mm-hmm. way these kids had seen this film. <laughs> and they would walk around with their arms out yeah. and they and they'd be like it's alive and all these things and it's like it's crazy how it penetrated the the Zeitgeist through like, you know, I, I was a kid in the in 90s, so it's like and you know.
2: Yeah. Well, there were so many other versions of it. And I think there was cartoon yeah. versions of it that I remember seeing. I thought the assistant's name was Igor for some mm-hmm. reason, and I think that's right. from some show I saw where the where the assistant's name was Igor, whereas here it's Fritz. So I don't know where that came from. And then also the idea that it was Henry Frankenstein mm-hmm. instead of Victor Frankenstein. I was so surprised by that. I'm like, it's always Victor. So in this version, they changed the name. But uh, in other versions, I, I haven't seen that as much.
1: Do you know why Frankenstein, I'm going to call him Frankenstein because that's sort of the, the context <laughs> we're we talking now. about, the monster in here, <laughs> is usually green?
2: Oh, uh, no. Is that, is that some artifact of the way black and white used to look?
1: They actually covered Boris Karloff in green paint in order to get the color that they wanted his t- his skin to look in the black and white film.
2: <laughs> oh, interesting! Wow. So he really was
1: green walking around on set.
0: I just thought it was huh. like a rotting flesh thing, or like you know,
1: yeah, that a zombie makes sense. Too. Somehow, yeah, he was like
0: literally green when he filmed this. That's interesting. Wow,
1: his whole suit just to talk about the practical effect of having the monster and having it be believable. I mean, it, the way he has his face sunken in, I think I, I read that he had actually had a few of his, he had like a bridge removed from his teeth so that it, it would sink in, his face would sink in in that way. Wow. So he did a lot to try to like create this character. And I think it plays on screen as well. Like you see the, like the prosthetic on top of his head so that his head is flat and, mm. and the like uh, electrodes on his neck, like all of these interesting decisions that were that were used uh, have become so iconic now. Right.
0: I thought it really tightened. in. This might be, I mean, too soon to talk about this, but- I thought like as a movie that leans into science fiction tropes, those decisions to me seem much more related to the, the field of phrenology. Like a lot of the science uh, in the movie is very much like instead of it being about anatomy, it's going to be about phrenology and about like the idea that the shape of your head determines your character. And even like the criminal body parts are somehow going to result in a creature that's has criminal dispositions. Although I don't like that yeah. like, held up in the plot. I'm like, yeah. He was kind of provoked quite a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know.
2: The other thing I wanted to do is uh, sometimes people listen to our movie episodes without listening to our book episodes, which I know is shocking, but <laughs> <laughs> sometimes people do that. Um, so I just wanted to actually take a second and and let people know who you are um, as a writer and that you said last week that you do work in, uh, in, in science fiction and horror with body horror in particular. And that's one reason why we wanted to have you on for Frankenstein. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about. That and like how this movie uh, maybe made you think of your own work and 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 uh, the body horror that you write.
0: Yes, wow, big topic. Um, so this is a little bit of a recap for anyone who listened for last week. But um, for my day job, I'm also a scientist. I'm a speech language pathologist, and as part of my training, um, I did human dissections, which is kind of exciting and interesting. Um, and a lot of that training, that experience, really shaped me as a science fiction writer as well, because I'm very interested in. The fact that human bodies work at all like <laughs> because uh, when you start studying it it's just an unbelievable system that um seems like that it should just fall apart any minute um and um and i find that really interesting to get into in science fiction and even like some of mary shelley's themes of like um what are we aware our creations as human beings and like you know what you know are there lines you can cross in the you know the world of science that are a bridge too far. And like, what is a body? Like, you know, can you, if you remix it, like, is it still the same person? Like, you know, a lot of these bits and pieces that you get um, that I think are also really present in the film as well as in the book. Um And I think that this movie especially made me think a lot about like, to me, it, it seemed to be a movie much more distinctly about um the ethics of science than even so the book was, because I think the book kind of gets into some deeper philosophical stuff, but the movie to me was concerned with this question of like, you know, Victor, well, sorry, he's not Victor in this movie, you know, Dr. Frankenstein, I guess. <laughs> is he playing God? Is it like bad? Like, and then, you know, what is the, the this creature and what should you do with it? And like, you know, does it have feelings and should it be destroyed? And like, you know, there just being a kind of like a, a sense of disquietude and discomfort I and mean, this thing that Victor, sorry, Dr. Frankenstein <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> save that through this entire episode. I am so sorry that I'm not gonna be able to get his name right. Um, <laughs>
2: Well, it's hard because you're talking about you're talking about the two characters who are the same character, yet they have once in one version it's Victor and one version it's Henry. So right, you're right, yeah. And the
1: interesting distinction too is like his they we, we meet his professor and he's like yeah he didn't finish school he ran away so he's not even a doctor. that's yeah. crazy right. I was <laughs> right. I was shocked <laughs> to <not>. realize that.
2: <laughs> Yeah,
0: he's like kind of a dropout.
2: And then there is a character named Victor in this version, so that just right. further muddies the waters. Right. I'm <laughs> so
0: trying to get Henry, Henry, Henry. So like, I think it's interesting that Henry and the Henry in, in the movie version is way less ashamed of what he does too. Like, yeah, he's just kind of like, yeah, I'm obsessed. Leave me alone, so you don't throw off my groove. And then when a whole audience, including his fiance, shows up to like watch the animation of this corpse, he's like, sure, you can watch as long as you don't interrupt me. Like,
2: yeah. <laughs> versus the one in the
0: he, book I, who's kind of like. Definitely doesn't want to be caught with what he's doing. It was very ashamed when he realizes what he's done. And-
1: it's a big secret the whole time in the book, right? And and here it was not a secret at all. Mm-mm.
2: A no. lot of the sort of subtlety of the book has been replaced with, uh, uh, yeah, sort of over the home plate kind of pitching. It felt like they were trying to make this broadly accessible. So a lot of the like, uh, what it means to be alive and to be a person that Mary Shelley was dealing with um, is sort of stripped away from this version. And it's a lot more about, is it ethical to create life? And once you do, what's your responsibility to it? And in fact, we're gonna tell you in the opening introduction that uh, this mad scientist did this without first reckoning upon God. And uh, so, (laughs) so it's like, yeah, this is bad. We know it's bad. You know it's bad now sit back and be horrified I experience guess. it yeah
1: <laughs> i think they knew what audiences were ready for at the time i think that if they had made the other film that were the mary shelley version where we're going into the philosophy of it all yeah in a, in that medium i just don't think audiences were ready yet it was too early stages yeah clearly i mean this because this did super well although obviously the book was around well before so yeah. there was an audience for the book as well
2: yeah it's so different it's like it's funny how the, you know, literary and film audiences are different, even to this day, and have different expectations. Even though there's overlap there, it's not as much as you might think.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that now that we've got out of the studio system, though, right? There's like, there are indie films that can yeah. kind of approach that sort of literary look at this, like, you know what I mean? They're yeah. closer than they used to be. They're there's just be. a
2: lot more movies being made nowadays, too, so. Right. More opportunity yeah. for that. Um, I-, I did, before we move into the actual plot, in the introduction, they show the credits. yes can um, we talk about and, that? Yeah, um, <laughs> they did. They did Mary Shelley so bad. <laughs> uh, she is she is quoted as being adapted by Mrs. Percy B. Shelley, uh, which I was I thought that was so disrespectful. Oh my uh, god! Why, yeah. Um, when I say last I,
0: week that you, you you find the nearest man and you just assign the credit to him, and yeah. I was like, oh, they did it. <laughs> Yeah. So I
2: yeah. I don't know. I don't know why that decision was made. Um, bizarre. And yeah, Mrs. Percy B. Shelley. Come
1: on. Come <laughs> on. That's crazy. Yeah. This is a weird time uh, for filmmaking, too, because I don't know how much, how familiar you are with the sort of film history version of the censorship that went on with like the Hayes Code and the uh, motion picture production code censorship that was going on. So around this time, right at Frankenstein, honestly, maybe because of these like horror films and some of the gangster films that were starting to come out. Um, they started to, they created a commission and, and like basically the government started saying like, these are the, the, the ethical codes that you have to stick to in filmmaking. And they started to censor a lot of things. And there is a cut of this film that existed for a long period of time where they cut out sections of this film. They cut out where Boris Karloff's monster throws the girl into the water they when he like grabbed her they cut away and like things like that were so so what they were looking for um were depictions of sexual innuendo romantic and sexual relationships between white and black people mild profanity illegal drug use promiscuity prostitution infidelity abortion intense violence and homosexuality wow so obviously like all the best stuff all of the things that that make life worth living right uh, they decided to crack down on but yeah it was pretty bad and and people were blacklisted people lost their jobs and were never able to work in the industry again after wow. that so this is mostly it starts to crack down in like 34 or so so this was right before that um, which is why they released another cut to to censor some of the things that were going on so just Mary Shelley being being miscredited doesn't surprise me either like with yeah. all the things that were that were building up in that and it was such a big like I said before the studio system was the only way that films were released so it was all coming through a few white men's hands you know yeah. the more things change the more they
2: stay the same right like right. that 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 attitude is still there right like it's just it, we've sort of beaten it back but like so much of american politics is about that exact kind of mentality trying to assert power in this country so uh, sorry a little bit of an aside but (laughs) it just makes me think of that right right like if if people had if they still had control right like that would still be a thing that would still be the way we were censoring all of our media
1: luckily that doesn't last forever we we are able to have some uncensored films these days (laughs) for the time being somewhat at least. Yeah. I mean, there's still like a rating system that's implemented obviously eventually, but uh, yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit about the filmmaker here. James Whale was an English film director, theater director, and actor who spent the greater part of his career in Hollywood. He's best remembered for several horror films, Frankenstein, the old dark house, the invisible man and bride of Frankenstein, which are all considered classics. Whale also directed films in other genres, including the 1936 film version of the musical Showboat. Um, he's known for developing a style characterized by the influence of German expressionism and a highly mobile camera. Um, one of the most iconic shots from the film is when is the reveal of the monster. Do you guys remember how that plays out? He sort of opens the door, walks in backwards. Oh, yeah. And then there's, like, a push in as his face is revealed. Mm-hmm. And, like, these are things that, like, we think of today in filmmaking, like yeah. so, like dynamic mo- motion to the camera is so inherent to making a film now, but it was it was kind of novel at the time. Like it was it was sort of a, a thing some filmmakers would turn their nose up at. So it's cool to see him developing the style alongside German expressionism. And like I said, this would go on to influence a lot of film noir. Basically, takes over the next couple decades, and it owes a lot to this time this style of filmmaking. I definitely
2: noticed the camera motion. Um, it, there were several scenes where. It felt modern to me, like the, you know, the slowly panning in on people. The There was the scene where the camera walks through the street in that German town and there's all these extras performing. Um, it, a lot of that stuff, like I wouldn't have expected in a movie from the 30s. Like I was thinking like this is before World War Two. Like this is so long ago to think about these people and, and like what they were about to go through in their lives as the entire w- world was about to be. You know, torn apart by war in the in the coming decades, and just how I don't know that was that was kind of a surreal moment for me, even thinking about that. Um, and and it just goes to show like how long ago this truly was, as far as like what we what we think of is just like common knowledge, like was not established at this point.
1: There's actually something cool that I didn't realize. Whale is credited with being the first director to use a 360 degree panning shot in a feature film. In this film, Frankenstein.
2: Is that the one where? Wait, wow. 360 degree panning shot is is that when he's looking through no that has to be something different because I, I noticed when when uh Henry and the monster look at each other through the spinning mill mm-hmm. um but I don't that's think that's a great shot I, I don't think it's spin you know
1: they use the motion of that of that wheel going around to cut so that it's a really clean cut and it almost like hides the cut and they like turn into each other it's such a cool yeah shot. That's so
0: clever <laughs> I'm I'm really appreciating this conversation because these are things that I just completely missed as a non-expert in this area. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've just learned a lot from James over the years. <laughs> so I notice more things now than I did originally.
1: It's it's you know it's all intentional. That's my favorite thing to talk to people about is just like everything that you see in the frame, every decision that's made, every movement of the camera, every framing decision, things in the background. I love and I love to just like stop and analyze things that I'm not with. Well, in, in that way. Well, and and there's a correlation to me
2: with writing, right? Like you think about like the average reader doesn't realize all of the nuance that's going into like just even a paragraph of prose and how as a writer, you can sit there and talk about all the decisions that are being made uh, on multiple levels, um, within that prose. And like, but like, I mean, it, there's, it's just much like movies, like the average audience member doesn't pick up on all of that, but it's mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe it's there subconsciously. <laughs> I
0: think it is like, I know that, um, I would like to say with the, the, the meaning of writing that if you're doing it correctly, it looks easy and effortless and obvious. And I think it's probably true in film too, that like you, you kind of know when something's going off rails. Like if you've ever, if you're an amateur, you can be watching a movie or reading a book and you're just kind of not entirely into it for some reason. And you know you can't really figure out why. You're just like, oh, I don't know, it's fine. I just don't, I'm just not into it. And like, I always find that those sorts of experiences for like non-experts, just like that's the moment where like you're picking up on it, whatever it is. And sometimes, like you're watching movie where you just can't look away, like you know, like watching Fury Road, for example, where like you know, if you're an action movie person, Fury Road is just so incredibly well made as a film that like you know you can't you can't look away. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know,
2: even if, even if you don't understand how a trick is working, no, you, you can, can still be affected by it, <laughs> right? Like exactly. You're like it's just great. <laughs>
1: I also think a lot about effort. Like, um, you know, you might blow through a paragraph in a book mm-hmm. that yep. took an author like a month to write. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, <God>. yes, <laughs> or, or like having to come back and revise it so many times. And like, same thing with with film. It's it's the amount of preparation I think is is lost a lot of times for people. That like the amount of effort that goes into some of these things. And then w- with film, you also have the time constraint and all these people and burning money and all that kind of thing as well. So. it's just i say it all the time is just like the fact that any film is ever good is (laughs) is a miracle for sure
0: (laughs) and with so many more people too because with with the novel i can kind of control it because i'm usually the only finger in that pot but yeah
2: (laughs) yeah
1: well your your imagination is your only limit right like with film they're like you'll have like a location manager come up and be like no we can't do that sorry
2: (laughs) yeah ouch (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and, and the, the amount of limitations there used to be, you know, you know, compared to today where you can do almost anything like, yeah. That right.
1: Was... Well, and, and like you, we saw, I don't know if you know how much you noticed these like Tesla coil sort yeah. of electrical things. I read a lot about these and there's a, uh, a man named Ken Strickfaden who created all the electrical gadgets and effects for the movie and also doubled for Boris Karloff during the sequences that showed the volt sparks playing all over his body. Um, this person created uh, all of this, and I guess they reused these electrical gadgets in The Bride of Frankenstein and a lot of other films. And then when Mel Brooks found out that the lab equipment was still working, he used it in the comedy Young Frankenstein in 1974. And he gave Strickfaden on-screen credit that he didn't receive from this film or any of the other films. And I, I also read that like Kiss was using... The band, rock band Kiss was using these some of this the actual screen used uh, gadgets on their tour in 1976.
2: Oh my god! How did they get a hold of those? Oh but appara-
1: I, I know, right? Isn't that crazy? But apparently, they were deemed um, too dangerous and unpredictable. So they ended up. So it's like that's crazy to think in the 70s they were like, "This is too dangerous and unpredictable," and these actors were like all around them in the 30s. Yep. And just thinking about like you know safety guidelines and things like that that we've learned about on past projects like. You know, it's crazy to think that while you're giving a performance, you might need to be thinking about like crazy Am I parking die? electrical volts and yeah. stuff. Yeah.
0: Primitive electricity <laughs> shooting through the air and
1: wow. Yeah. Another really notable thing about James Whale that, that I loved was uh, he lived as an openly gay man throughout his career in wow. the British theater and in Hollywood, which was unheard of at the time period. Normally, a lot of you know discrimination against people who would, who would come out in this way. Had like a successful career and unfortunately, there's a film called The Road Back in 1937 that he was creating and apparently there was some pushback from the studio and some other like forces that were that eventually were found to be like Nazi affiliated because this is like 1937. So he... Effectively, was forced out of the industry because there were so many setbacks, and this money, this movie cost so much money, and pressures from different organizations. Uh, again, pre World War Two, when things are going crazy, and this like that would kind of be his last film, and then he would, he would. I think he had one more with The Man in the Iron Mask in 1939, and then he retired from film in 41 because he basically was like kind of blacklisted and just wasn't allowed to work any any longer. Um, so just crazy to think like someone who created Frankenstein and and like really made film noir and and German expressionism more accessible and seen by a lot of people eventually would go on to be blacklisted. And then I also did read, unfortunately, he committed suicide later in life around 67, which is just tragic.
2: Is that at 1967 or when he was he, aged he was 67 in
1: 1957,
2: 57. OK
0: know so, you know, you're, I, it's irresistible for me not to, like, rethink this movie, like, as terms of its subject as, like, you know, mm. through that lens of, like, a queer filmmaker and, you know, people right. literally carrying torches to go and burn you down and, like, just this experience of, like, you know, just being this, you know, pure creation that, you know, <laughs> isn't doing anything to hurt anyone and just being tortured from the moment that you, you exist, you know, to the moment you die. So, you know... <laughs>
1: I think you're picking up on something a lot of film critics have seen over the years that, like, absolutely is, is in in the you know it's baked into the film.
2: Yeah, the if we're ready to talk about it, one of the things I was struck by was the empathy shown to the monster. I wasn't really expecting that in this version. Like, it's definitely in Mary Shelley's work. I like I think it's one of the key fixtures of that novel. But I thought this was going to be, hey, here's a monster, isn't it scary? But I empathize with the monster a ton in this movie.
0: So sympathetic, like, um, and it's interesting because, like, when it when the movie started and we started off with like um, Henry Frankenstein scavenging corpses and getting the abnormal brain and all these little bits that were to me telegraphing that there was going to be something really wrong with the monster. I was surprised when then it goes and shows us the monster getting tortured by Fritz and even like. The very upsetting scene where the, the 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 real professor is like trying to to, to have his autopsy of him and like they're just being all these things where you can see the monster is just getting tormented and and i i can't blame him i'm like no yeah <laughs> I, like, I don't feel like that he did anything really on purpose and he was just kind of scared all the time and
1: i couldn't really wrap my head around as far as the story was concerned why they started tormenting the, the monster so quickly
2: i don't it's so random. The same reason that the same reason that Victor Frankenstein in the novel was immediately horrified and fl- and fled. I, I think it's just yeah. they they immediately see this thing as other and not an inhuman and and, and and an animal as as the other professor says. Uh, are we ready? Maybe we should start with some summary.
1: Yeah, let's get into it. Okay. So Frankenstein begins with Edward Van Sloan stepping from behind a curtain to break the fourth wall and deliver a brief caution to the audience. Then, in a village of the Bavarian Alps, Henry Frankenstein and his assistant, Fritz, piece together a human body. Some of the parts are from freshly buried bodies, and some are from the bodies of recently hanged criminals. In a laboratory he's built inside a watchtower, Henry desires to create a human, giving this body life through electrical devices. He still needs a brain for his creation. At a nearby school, Henry's former teacher, Dr. Waldman, shows his class the brain of an average human being and the corrupted brain (laughs) of a criminal for comparison. Henry sends Fritz to steal the healthy brain from Waldman's class. Fritz accidentally damages it, and so brings Henry the corrupt brain. Henry's f- fiance Elizabeth, speaks with her friend Victor about the scientist's peculiar actions and his seclusion. Elizabeth and Victor ask Waldman for help understanding Henry's behavior, and Waldman reveals he is aware Henry wishes to create life. Concerned for Henry, they arrive at the lab just as he makes his final preparations for the lifeless body on an operating table. As a storm rages... Henry invites Elizabeth and the others to watch. Henry and Fritz raise the operating table towards an opening at the top of the tower. The creature and Henry's equipment are exposed to the lightning storm and empowered, bringing the creature to life. It's alive! Yeah, I, I, put, I posted that scene on our Instagram uh, story because
2: I was like, this is one of the most iconic scenes in movie history, right? Like, it has to be. If you, yeah. were to, if you were to cut together, you know, the 50 most iconic scenes of all time, like I think this one might be in there.
1: I think I read uh, something along those lines like the the AFI or somebody had some sort of voting system and that this scene made it made the cut of like one of the greatest scenes of all time.
2: Yeah. And and, you know, it it, it holds up. I think it's great. Like the, the sort of madness that is coming through his voice and the the taboo of creating life in you know without r- first reckoning upon God as said in the intro um, I think that all comes across in this moment but let's back up uh, to the beginning of the no- uh, uh, novel uh, of the <laughs> of the film um, and and talk about this grave digging scene grave uh, robbing scene um, I, I thought there was and, and this starts here but it continues uh, through a lot of the scenes some really interesting decisions being made with skeletons and skulls and shadows. Um, where you see, uh, and like, I think it was like a statue in the graveyard that was a skeleton. Um, and it was like, like looming over the, the burial. And then later in the college, it's like on this little wire and it's like bouncing at one point. So you see the, the, uh, the shadow of the skeleton almost like dancing on the wall and it was lit oh. kind of low. So the shadow was cast like into the classroom.
1: German expressionism. That's it, dude. Yeah. That was it. Low angle, high contrast. And uh, like shadows climbing up the walls like that, being larger than the characters themselves. Yeah, totally.
2: Yeah. And, and in particular, the skulls, right? Because then later we get the conversation with the professor and he's just got these skulls lined up on a shelf mm-hmm. and there's like all this stuff all around him. And yeah, I thought like there was a, a you know, the, the diagrams even of anatomy behind him were, were kind of, uh, I don't know, gross. <laughs> it was like there was a lot of muscle tissue. And I think they know that people are a little bit put off by anatomy and so they wanted that to be in the frame for all these scenes.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, just to talk about it, because you mentioned when he bumps into the the one in the school, yeah. the, when he's stealing the brain, uh, I read that that's a real human skeleton.
2: Wow. wow. Because
1: film producers found it faster and cheaper to purchase a real human skeleton from a biological supply house rather than creating an artificial one.
0: There's an uncredited <laughs> actor there in the film.
1: Somebody's there. <laughs> Somebody made the cut and they didn't even know it. One of the many uncredited actors in this movie. <laughs> they, only cred- yeah. they only
2: credit about twelve people, I think, in the, in the entire. Speaking thing. of
1: credits, too, did you see that the next to the monster there was a question mark? Yeah, yes! the opening
2: at the end they actually say Boris Kala, but they in the do, beginning yeah. it's just like question mark. What is that?
1: <laughs> is it leading to sort of that Blair Witch thing? It's believable. We don't know. It was a real creature that wandered onto set. I think
2: they, I think they are wanting you to to wonder if it was a real creation. Yeah.
0: I got almost, like, shades of... During that period of time, you would have had, like, eugenics being a big thing, like, in addition to phrenology. But, like, some shades of that idea, like, in some of the imagery and some of the, like, even abnormal versus normal brain and the criminal bodies. And, you know, it's just kind of an interesting... Once again, on the shade of World War II, like, this being a period where that was a...
2: Well, in a a pseudoscience (laughs) being stated as fact, right? Like, and we still see that all the time and, and how if people don't know to think critically about what you're hearing and that not every time someone with any measure of authority says something authoritatively, doesn't mean it's true. And yeah, like that, that professor saying like, you can see the difference in the brain between this (laughs) criminal and this uh, average. Look at it. You could tell that it's different in the front. And it's like, no, (laughs) you probably can't do that.
0: (laughs) And what I think it's, it's important to mention because the fact that this movie derives a lot of its horror from that, and maybe even more so than for us today, like this idea of like this, Uh, You know, the horror of the unknown, the horror of like what's in your DNA and what, you know, the dirty people that, you know, like, you know, obviously it's a very, very, very racist um, belief and, you know, a piece of pseudoscience, But you know, all that idea of like, you know, who is criminal and who looks like a criminal and, you know.
2: It's it's hard because like I'm of two minds when I'm watching stuff from this period where it's like, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't hold up to today's sort of viewpoints right like in 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 a lot of this stuff is very anti sort of disability um you look at you look at uh the 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 assistant who is sort of hunchbacked and how we've seen a character like that time and time again be treated as other lesser than um and and we're seeing it here um and in fact that fritz character is just kind of despicable um, yeah. and well, the, the, the yeah. decision
1: to include the character is interesting too, because one of the core elements of, of Victor, I feel like from the novel is sort of isolation yeah. and yeah. then, and then you add in a character who's sort of his assistant and then he's just a mad scientist now. Yeah. Kind of
2: yeah. yeah. This version I, I'm I, and and that's like one of the only reasons I was kind of okay with them giving him a different name. Because this version uh, of of I guess Doctor Frankenstein, <laughs> how do I don't know how to refer to him? Um, <laughs> it, it feels like a different character in many ways. Like we still have the Elizabeth connection, but like, yeah, this this version is all mad scientist and with very little of the internal turmoil that we see in the novel over what have I done and, and reckoning with all that. And in fact, he he feels worse for Fritz, I think, than any other character we see is he, he's like, oh, Fritz, you know, he's like kind of overcome with guilt over what happens to Fritz. And that's that's the only real guilt we see out of him, right? Not what have I done and, and, and what, have, what kind of life have I
0: have I given this monster? He has like a, like the fever for a minute where like when he kind of goes into his little sickness for a bit and they take him out of the, um, the windmill. But like, yeah, he never really gets his comeuppance and he kind of ends up being the hero at the end, which surprised me. I was like,
1: kind of, yeah.
0: That took a, (laughs)
1: felt very, like, uh, that's of the time, right? Like, you, they needed the main character to win and have a happy ending, like, unfortunately. Well, as, as much as it doesn't really play well.
0: Well, I thought his best friend was going to win. I thought that, like, at the beginning when Elizabeth and Victor, the best friend, they kind of have, like, a little, like, spark there where he's like, mm-hmm. oh, man, you're marrying him, but I have feelings for you, too. And I was like, oh, he's going to be the hero. And my theory was that they gave him the name Victor because it he's going to be the victor like he's going to be, he's going to win Interesting. and so it's like okay great the the evil mad scientist is going to die and he's going to come in and get the girl and that's not what happened
2: yeah and, and and i thought they were also kind of going that way because at one point and i thought i don't know if i'm reading too much into it but henry turns to victor and says take care of elizabeth you know mm-hmm. what, you know what i mean or something like that like <laughs> you know what i was I mean. like i was like oh oh what is he what is he saying yeah <laughs> Oh, so this opening uh this opening part, I, I think the other thing we gotta talk about is this the sequence of imbuing life, galvanizing this corpse uh into life, and uh I was taken with that moment where they raised the the table up through the opening in the ceiling to to be in the storm. Like I wasn't expecting that. I thought the lightning was gonna strike and we were gonna see a bunch of lightning on the, the machines. I didn't expect the raising at all. Um it's kinda cool. It definitely looks amazing. I did feel like the the focus on the science is sort of shifted completely to the power of the heavens that even Henry here doesn't really understand, um, and he's just sort of like using God's power to imbue life into this thing. Um, he's identified this you know special ray of light, he says, but other than that, it, it felt like. I don't know, like, less scientific somehow than the novel that was written 100 years before. <laughs> no.
1: Yeah. There's this shot, too, where the monster walks out and they, like, reveal the sunlight. He, like, reaches out towards it, and, like, the way he reacts there, like, feels kind of holy, like, kind of reaching for something that... I, I, I don't know. I, I Maybe I was reading into that a little no, bit. No, yeah, I can see what you're saying. Yeah.
0: That was such a beautiful scene. I really, really, really enjoyed that as a piece of filmmaking, and I think that was the moment... The monster's creation and at that moment to me really sold me on what what there is to appreciate in actually seeing this movie and not just like learning third hand, third hand what the
2: iconic moments are. Mm-hmm. You know what that kind of also illustrates to me, just as like kind of a storytelling aside, um, the, the role of the audience is distinct from all the other characters in this movie because I think it's just the audience and perhaps the filmmaker who seem to be in on the the story that's playing out with the monster and how it's being abused and how it's being mistreated and misunderstood none of the other characters seem to get this at all Um, but we as the audience do and the filmmakers putting it there but none of the other characters we see are doing it And, and i was thinking about how like in writing that can also be the case right where the goal of the story can be to evoke that emotion in the reader but you might not see that reflected in any of the characters that are, that are in the story itself, but it might just be your role as the reader coming to it.
1: It's almost like getting information that we shouldn't have. Right. In a sense. But, but we're kind of picking up on it and the, the characters can't cause they're so. Yeah.
2: And it makes you feel like you're, it makes you feel like you're picking like you're getting something that the, the rest of the characters are missing. Like you're, you're ahead of them. Like you get something that they don't see. Um, and it's just cool because you know that that, that isn't an accident that's been put there by the creator of the film um, because he wants you to feel that way.
0: Yeah. So you're right. I mean, I, I hadn't thought about it as like a point of view change that like, you know, there's actually some scenes here that only the monster's experiencing. And like, in some ways that is very true to the spirit of the novel where you've got these nested stories where each person is kind of giving a firsthand account of how they saw things. Yeah. Um, which would have been, you know, so it, it's kind of a really cool adaptation decision there to like, see how can you get across those different points of view of these different stakeholders. And even though, the, you know, because the novel is also framed as kind of Victor's story, but mm. the monster is the one that we all kind of love when we read it.
2: Yeah, and and that's the you sign know? to me that this filmmaker did read the novel, right? Because the yeah. idea of the empathy for the monster, I think, comes from Mary Shelley's
1: work.
0: And I just, what the actor brings to it is incredible.
1: Yeah, we should definitely talk about Boris Karloff. He wasn't the first choice. He was kind of unknown at the time. James Whale saw him in, a, in like the Universal Commissary. So they're eating together on this in the same area. And he like goes up to him and slips him a note and asks him to be a part of this. And Boris Karloff, I guess, jokingly in hindsight says like, "Will,
2: will you be in my movie?"
1: <laughs> I think it was more like, uh, "Will you play Should this like grotesque monster?" It? And then, and then Boris Karloff took it to be like, "I thought I was looking pretty good that day. I was wearing a suit and everything." And...
2: You look like a monster.
1: <laughs> was he like really tall or something? Like, is there something about? I I don't know much about him. They use a lot of prosthetics and things to help. There's actually legend stories that I, I've read that are kind of debunked at this point, but supposedly within this film and subsequent Frankenstein films, he uh due to like the brace and some of the things that they had created for him, like hurt his back and dealt with really bad back problems for a long time. But some somebody was debunking it, quote unquote, and saying that it was it had he had injuries before and they were exacerbated. And I was like, well either way he got hurt from the film. Yeah, if you're exacerbating
2: so. previous injuries, that's still bad. <laughs>
1: It's really unfortunate they had to, like, suffer through that uh, in that way. But they kept asking him to come back for all uh, all the Frankensteins that they could. And this is, I think, a good moment to also mention that this is, like, sort of... They were doing what Marvel is doing now. They were like, oh, you guys like the Wolfman and you like Dracula and you like Boris Karloff's Frankenstein or the monster. They started blending them together. They're like, oh. Wolfman meets Frankenstein. And they started having them in the same movies together. So, I, yeah. So, the marketing behind this
2: might have been- also been sort of the <laughs> what we were talking about earlier to blame as they might have just been referring to this creature as as Frankenstein I assume
1: really I think so yeah, yeah. Uh, but so Boris Karloff uh, took four hours each day for Jack P Pierce to apply this cumbersome costume which weighed forty six pounds and he had to wear it in the uncomfortable heat of the summer each of his shoes weighed thirteen pounds
2: what
1: <laughs> well that's why he walked so slow
2: no joke. <laughs>
1: They really like uh, piled on a lot of stuff, and I and I read that the monster, when he carries Dr. Frankenstein up the mountainside and to the mill, at the insistence of James Whale, Boris Karloff actually carried Colin Clive in these shots up a mountain, basically. Wow. Uh, several times over several days, he was 44 at the time, oh, and God. he had like a back brace on, 13 pound b- boots, and he was badly <laughs> 40 injured pound, 40
2: pound costume, and then he's carrying a full grown man. Yes. Yeah, that sounds tough. <laughs> it just
1: sounds like the kind of thing that you hear in the 30s that would never happen these days. I like, mean, it,
2: it. yeah, it doesn't surprise mm-hmm. me when I know the kind of shit that was going on even on like the 80s. Like when we cover 80s movies, it feels like the Wild West compared to today. Well, we talked
1: about the, the stuff with children and the child labor filming laws and everything that came into effect after the Twilight Zone. And yeah, Disaster. it's really unfortunate that like something has to happen before people will take you know take the necessary precautions
2: somebody's got to die maybe a few people before someone starts
1: caring wow. it's really sad yep. really really sad uh jack p pierce i mentioned is the makeup designer and uh, apparently universal has the licensing for the makeup of the monster through like 2027 or something like that wow so it could be entering like this film and some of the licensing things with this could be entering the public domain okay. but you know they keep pushing that back they keep Changing laws so that that isn't the case, but yeah, we have Jack P. Pierce to to thank for the flat head, the electrodes or bolts that are there, the the eyelid, uh, sort of being pulled down some, mm. and then the suit being really boxy. Those are all his decisions Such an in, iconic in look. creating an iconic, yeah, character. Yeah, wow, wow. All right, just to continue down the behind the scenes rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Bella Lugosi was the actor who played Dracula previous to this film coming out. And was the first choice, I believe, to play the monster in this Uh. film, but famously turned it down. Um, And I think when he left, the director, the original director also left. And so the script was given to James Whale, who refused to do it because he thought it was a joke. Um, It had been erroneously reported that Lugosi refused to conceal his handsome face with heavy makeup. However, miscellaneous photos give evidence of his history of wearing heavy makeup for different parts prior to this movie.
2: Yeah, I mean he looks pretty pretty gross as Dracula, right? Like in that uh, original film. I
1: think he's I think he's like sort of like, like it, it was the gross. beginning of that sex like... symbol sort of like Okay, m-
2: maybe I maybe I'm thinking of a different <laughs> yes. version of the movie.
1: <laughs> yeah. Are you thinking of Gary Oldman's like Bram Stoker? No, but isn't version? even that
2: like referring to an older one with the we see the shadow and the long nails and Nosferatu. 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 Uh, that's yeah, what I'm no. thinking of. But right. okay, but that's not Bela Lugosi. No. Okay.
0: So, we're overdue for a hot Frankenstein, is what you're saying. Like, well, there has been a hot Frankenstein.
1: Oh, I'm sure. <laughs>
2: <Yeah.
1: You know. laughs> All right. More on Lugosi after Dracula. Some people regard his decision to turn down Frankenstein as one of the worst decisions of his career. But in actuality, he was offered not the same role that Karloff would go on to play, but that previous version that I, I don't know that I've mentioned too much, but basically. Uh, Robert Flory had recharacterized the monster as a simple killing machine without a touch of human interest or pathos, uh, unlike in the original Shelley novel. So this reportedly caused Legosi to complain, "I was a star in my country, and I will not be a scarecrow over here."
2: He turned down a like a different version of the script.
1: Different version, and I think you know we're better off for the fact that it traveled through a couple hands because I think. James Whale was the right one to direct it. I think he understood the character in a way. that it sounds like that original script didn't... Right.
2: More like what I was kind of expecting from this movie, honestly, it sounds like.
0: Just a straight-up scary monster with not the layer of empathy there, you know?
1: Yeah. So continuing the plot, Frankenstein's monster, despite its grotesque form, seems to be an innocent childlike creation. Henry welcomes it into his laboratory and asks it to sit, which it does. He opens up the roof, causing the monster to reach out towards the sunlight. Fritz enters with a flaming torch, which frightens the monster. Its fright is mistaken by Henry and Waldman for an attempt to attack them, and it is chained in the dungeon, where Fritz antagonizes it with a torch. Hearing Fritz shriek in the dungeon, Henry and Waldman run down, finding the monster has strangled and hanged Fritz. The monster lunges at the two, but they lock it inside. Realizing the monster must be destroyed, Henry prepares an injection of a powerful drug, and the two conspire to release the monster and inject it as it attacks. When the door is unlocked, the monster lunges at Henry and Waldman injects the drug into the monster's back. The monster falls to the floor unconscious. Henry collapses from exhaustion and Elizabeth and Henry's father take him home. Henry is worried about the monster, but Waldman reassures him that he will destroy it. While Henry is at home recovering and preparing for his wedding, Waldman examines the monster. As he prepares to vivisect it, the monster strangles him. It escapes from the tower and wanders through the landscape, encountering a farmer's young daughter, Maria. She asks him to play a game with her in which they've tossed flowers onto a lake. The monster enjoys the game, but when they run out of flowers, he throws Maria into the lake where she disappears beneath the surface.
0: The yeet of injustice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He
1: didn't mean it. He he yeeted too hard.
0: Yes. (laughs) So, can I just say for, I think we all are going to agree on this, but like, Fritz deserved what he got. Like, he fucked around, he found out. Like, 100%. (laughs) I did not cry. I like clapped when that happened. I was like, go go monster <laughs> right
1: i just didn't understand so like they they were worried that it was violent and then fritz antagonizes it and i'm like what okay so you're afraid of the creature you're locking it away but also you're going to fuck with it and get it all pissed off
2: not, not only that God, fritz gets a whip out and starts whipping yes. the monster for no reason i guess just to make him ma- make him quiet i guess cuz it was making a lot of noise but they're up in an abandoned tower in the middle of nowhere who cares
1: makes no sense. Fritz, uh nobody misses you. Yeah. No. Bye.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you You ended as you deserve and the only the only shame there is that they extrapolated the need to do something about the monster after that cuz I was like maybe you could just give him a a little time. Like <laughs> Right.
1: I <laughs> I've know? heard that if you just like throw some flowers into the water with him and teach him that you don't <laughs> throw people in, he'll be fine. He'd yeah. be
2: okay. I mean. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about Baron Frankenstein. Uh, who gets a decent amount of screen time and and I thought I thought it was a pretty interesting character. Um, I, he's one of those people that, like, in real life, I, I'm sure this guy would have a lot of things to not like about him. But as far as his role goes in this movie, I kind of liked him. He's super grumpy. He's kind of funny. Like he's he's like he's super sarcastic and he's like snarking at everybody. The guy comes in and he's like, "Oh, young Henry's a spitting image of his father." And he's like, "God forbid." I don't know. He's just like a really funny, self-deprecating at times. And he's wearing a ridiculous, like, smoking jacket and hat, and he's got this weird pipe. And I thought he was such a such a you know distinct character. He puts on a monocle at one point when he goes to the tower. Um, and he's just I don't know. He reminds me of my own grandfather in some ways, a lot of like <laughs> the way his humor was, which I don't know. I mean, I know this is like way predates that but um i don't know i just i thought he was a pretty funny character um and you know a a pure invention for the film. you know this version of victor's father in the novel it would be uh was was not nearly this guy it was yeah
1: i thought that their whole interaction when they i know this is kind of a different time but the whole interaction when they get to the tower and they're knocking on the door and fritz is sent to like check and he like peeks out and then he closes it and runs back and he's like it's just a bunch of people and then (laughs) Frankenstein is like Victor, not Victor, but Henry. Whatever, Harry Frankenstein. <laughs> Henry Frankenstein is up in the tower. Wait, who's
2: Harry Frankenstein? <laughs> There's another Frankenstein has a shown up. <laughs>
1: Different story. So he's up in the tower, like looking down at them, and then they keep running back and forth, and it's just like pouring ass rain with that, like, god, godly lightning strikes that'll bring a Frankenstein to life, that'll bring a monster to life.
2: One thing that we didn't talk about last time, and I do want to touch on, is how Henry is at, like, it, all it takes is a challenge by, call, by, by basically insinuating that he might be crazy. And he's like, Oh, you think I'm crazy, do you? Come <laughs> up into my laboratory and let me show you who's crazy. And he takes him up there and shows, like, like, that's all it takes. And then he, it's like a challenge to him. And there's this weird, like, direction thing where he's like, You sit. And he's like, No. And he's like, You sit. Also, Elizabeth, I'm going to be nice to you. You sit. And then you, Professor, sit. Okay, and then he's going to walk over and then he's like, you want to come see the body? Yeah, come on over. And I'm like, why did you, you just spent so long making them all sit and then now you're making them come over to look at the, it was so weird. I don't know what he, like, it was like a weird power play or something. Um, but yeah, I don't know. And then he's making the monster stand up and sit down from the chair, like first thing. And Reed just <laughs> likes telling people what to do, I guess.
1: He loves to see, He you should see his dog. He's just like constantly <laughs> sit. Super well trained. you know. That's
2: that's good.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh, yeah, and I remember like the yeah the time when the dad visits the tower and like that being a really big deal. It's almost like oh no, we can't let dad see my monster in the basement. Fritz, go make sure he he stays quiet. That, you know, he yeah. wasn't afraid of like his fiance and his professor like witnessing what he was doing. But, you
2: know, no, he's just like old guard who who is not going to understand. Like you just know. Yeah, why he, aren't you, you
0: making you know, me grandbabies? Yeah. Like,
2: you
1: know, he's
2: convinced it's another woman. He's like, no, it's another woman. I don't care what you say. Yeah, it's another
1: woman. Exactly. Totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he uh, I like the, the interesting relationship between Henry and his professor, too, because the professor is like doesn't want to believe it is like you're bullshitting me at first. And then eventually is like more intrigued and then it works. And then he's like, you know, wanting to vivisect and, yeah. and do all these things.
2: Is that a bit of hubris we see from the professor too? Because he says that he'll destroy it humanely or something. And then mm-hmm. he's then taken it upon himself to, it seems like, study it some more.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Yeah. He
1: wants to learn about the ray of light as well, Yeah. clearly.
2: We, we even get like a shot of his notes where he's writing about how it's become more and more resistant to the shots over time. Setting up the moment where we see the hand, and it's so funny. though, like, that's one of the things that's so quaint today to see the hand slowly come up and grab on them back, and then like, oh my god, and then it cuts away, and I'm like,
1: that's it. It's pretty. That's a pretty iconic shot as well. I people were horrified, I'm sure, in the theater when it came up and grabbed him. Yeah, you probably people screaming in the theater. <laughs> uh, something I did want to mention just with the set design and everything, I, me- I noticed there are a few times when they would sort of dolly from room to room, you know, when the professor and everybody shows up. And I, I thought that was so cool to like give us this really sprawling, large environment to establish all of that. Um, and it just felt like I said, it felt pretty novel for the time. Like it felt like something that people weren't doing in that way. And everything felt a lot boxier. Like you're in a room. OK, we're going to lock it down and we'll be in that room. And this just gives it some a lot of character, I think.
2: Yeah, there, a, a moment sort of highlights what you're talking about to me was in the house when they're looking for the monster. And they go up to, I believe, the second floor. And the camera like goes from, from left to right, I think, or maybe right to left, or maybe it does both. But it's it's sort of moving in a way that it probably wouldn't be able to in a real house. It's kind of going into different rooms. And it sort of shows that like this is actually a set. But in a way that makes it also, like, the camera is kind of magical, right? Like, the camera's able to do something that, like, it shouldn't be able to do. And we still see that every now and then in movies today, right? Like, it's a choice to to have a camera move for, through a wall or something that it shouldn't be able to move through.
1: I especially like that moment you're talking about where it sort of dollies over and then we see into the room. We don't go into the room, but we see, like, through a hallway into another room where they're, like, searching for... Yeah. Uh, the monster, I yeah. think, right? Because yeah, yeah. Yeah. the monster has come we're to the sort house. Of tearing at that point. the rooms apart and we're seeing them like jump into each room mm-hmm. just from from tracking across and following them do that. It's yeah. Really cool.
0: So th- this section makes me think a little bit about like these different killings slash murders that the monster is doing and like we can all agree that Fritz deserved it. Yeah. Um, I think we can agree that the professor deserved it too. I mean he was literally like that was self defense to like yeah. stop a man from dissecting you. Do you think the little girl deserved it? Like, let's just no. be controversial. No.
2: <laughs> I don't think the girl deserved it. But it was an accident. That's the only one I think he killed accidentally. The other two he killed yeah. on purpose. And that's what's tragic. So, like, do you
0: think, think. it was his criminal nature right there to throw little girls into the water uh. when you're playing a costume <laughs> game? Or do you think it was just over-exuberant eating? Just um, getting into the spirit of throwing yeah. things.
1: Accident- an accidental <laughs> yeet. <laughs> I think it was just childlike joy was- and, like, misunderstanding. It yeah. really was
0: a sweet scene. I- I'm glad this monster got one person to like be nice to him unlike the one in the book who never had anyone. Like.
2: And we saw the smile, right? We saw that we saw an actual smile from the monster as he's happy about this
1: flower.
0: And she could see him. She wasn't blind. Like she could literally see him and she yeah. wasn't concerned.
1: Yeah. She comes up and, yeah, approaches him and talks to him and is f- friendly with him. And I think, you know, there's commentary being made there as well, right? Yeah. Like what society does to us over time and how it imposes its own viewpoint on, on people. And more we're young and innocent, we don't have that. We haven't, you know, we haven't unfortunately absorbed any of haven't, that. haven't. Um, haven't learned. Which will eventually be unfortunate. Not unfortunately. You know, I knew what you meant. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. It's unfortunate that later
2: <laughs> you will. Yeah. She she hasn't learned to see someone who looks different.
0: And right. we see what happened to her. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> just oh. <kidding. laughs>
1: yeah. I guess bad messaging there. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I guess Do you're you, right.
0: <laughs> were there any other... Mer- El, he doesn't kill anyone else though, right? Is that, the, is that the last one? And in
2: fact, I think the body count is like pretty... Like a significantly lower here than yeah. than in the bu- in the novel, right? Elizabeth survives. She does. Yeah.
0: Yeah, she had a much better role. I thought in this movie. I thought that they, they did some interesting things with her, and you know, I like that she had just more of a character and more of a more lines and more personality.
2: It it does work, but I was unclear on whether or not the creature even attacked her, or if she just got scared. Like, <laughs> I think she
0: just got scared because like, when like,
2: she was laying on the bed when they she we they came in, I was like, oh. Like, she's dead, but then she moves, and I was like, oh, I guess she's not dead. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, it, Yeah, I guess I guess the monster didn't. Which is just a very different version of the monster, right? Because the, the, the monster we get in Mary Shelley's novel knows that Victor created it and is like, I'm going to tear apart your life and kill everyone you love and, and care about. Whereas this version of the monster is not doing that. Um, and, and I guess it was just going there to, like, explore, maybe to look – for uh henry but i was unclear why the monster even went to the house right like why not just wander off into the wilderness yeah i wasn't sure about that i guess
0: you mean looking for people
2: yeah because i thought they were they were going to bring it back and be like now at some point the monster decided i'm going to come and kill someone that that my creator cares about i thought that's where we were going but that doesn't yeah. seem to be the case
0: you already killed fritz whose creator definitely cared about but you know <laughs> yeah um I had I one note to myself um on that scene where he breaks into Elizabeth's room and it's just that the 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 artist known as Frankenstein or whatever you call him is, is such a moron in here as well as in the book. Like <laughs> he like locks Elizabeth into the room. He locked her in. He like locked her like like she's a child into the room and like walks away, and then that's the only reason that situation happened. I was very frustrated that on everyone's behalf yeah. he did that. I'm like, man, dude.
2: You know, it's also weird about that scene where he, <laughs> so he throws the child into the lake. Like, I thought that was like, I don't know. It just made me think of like when you're a kid and somebody bumps you into the pool. Like,
1: yeah. I thought
2: he was just being playful. And I was so surprised that the, the child just dies.
1: I was like, whoa. I, I, I re- totally read it as him being playful, too. Like, maybe, maybe he didn't understand, but clearly she drowned because she couldn't yeah, swim. I guess. So it's on her, right? Yeah, yeah I guess.
2: <laughs> I mean, and like,
1: how deep was that water? Like, probably like
2: two feet deep, right? Like, couldn't have been that. Deep. She's really bad at swimming. Like,
1: really, Do you think really it bad. plays better if you cut away here? I wonder if the, the censored version plays oh, better. Oh,
2: it might be
0: scarier. You
1: know, if it, so he grabs her, and maybe you hear a splash, and like, does it play better?
0: And all you see is the father later carrying her.
1: It would change it because you would imagine that the monster
2: held her under would oh, be where my mind, yeah. my mind would go. Whereas we saw that this was an accident, which to right. me changes it quite a bit.
1: I, apparently, uh, people who had seen the edited version like that, the, the censored version, um, believed that she might not have been dead.
2: Oh, But he's like carrying her body in.
1: That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably cut as well, though, oh. from the censored version.
0: Oh,
2: yeah. OK.
0: You would have to which is a shame is it you're, you were right earlier when you said just what a great shot it is. It's just, um, yeah. Yeah. As, as the, <laughs> as the whole
2: party changes in tone as everybody sees what he's carrying. And I was, yeah, that was, that was quite a, quite a scene.
1: Another thing I was struck by just with these crowds is like, they, they really, they do a great job with the sets and the settings and if they were on location in certain towns. Um, but just the sheer number of people in some of these older films, like I, I think Ben, Hur is a super famous example of this. Like, giant crowd shots used to be practical you know all practical and just seeing this entire mob with their torches and stuff and the dogs being pulling them along and there were a few times where i was shocked just at like just seeing that many people on film and knowing it's real does something to the scene like it Mm. it really you know gives some some believability to it
2: i was wondering because like this is trying to evoke german like being in germany but nobody they don't really like I, I couldn't detect anybody who actually had a german accent they they use all british i think yeah they use a couple <laughs> german words but like yeah these are not german accents at all
0: or it could have been austria like yeah. I, I think in the book frankenstein is austrian
1: okay interesting yeah uh i actually did read something about this the time period and setting of the film are never mentioned and have been the subject of continuous <laughs> debate uh, the, elect- the electronic devices in this film and its sequel suggest the time period of the late 1800s, but Mary Shelley actually wrote the book in the early 1800s. The names of characters and locations seem to be mainly German origin, but the actors are mostly British and speak with British accents. Director James Whale said that it is meant to be like a fairy tale set in no particular year. Oh, okay. So
0: speaking of anachronisms, I did do a Victor Frankenstein hand-washing watch for watching this, <laughs> and for oh, anyone great. who didn't catch last week's episode... Um, that during the peri- period that Mary, Mary Shelley wrote her novel, um, it was before hand washing had been invented as like a scientific thing to reduce disease. Um, and I did notice that the professor was wearing gloves when he did that dissection, which wow. may or may not have been accurate. I'm, it's, I'm not sure that in Mary Shelley's time, he would have bothered with the gloves. He would have just yeah. rinsed in some water and then gone and delivered a baby. And, you know,
2: that's interesting. I, I guess so I anyway. assumed, I guess I assumed it was supposed to be <laughs> contemporary for the time the movie was released. But you're More saying 1930s. maybe maybe that wasn't supposed to be the case.
1: Well, I think it's a. Lo- I think some of the technology in villages would have you believe that it's old like it's older than nineteen okay, okay. thirties. I would think. But there wasn't um, any
2: cars now that you mention it, which there would have been right. probably some cars around that time period, right? Some like mm-hmm. at least early automobiles, whereas this was all like horse and buggy kind of thing, I
1: think. Right. Um, to talk about the hand washing and the gloves too I, I wonder if that's just an oversight and not thinking about the history oh. of that kind of thing you know what <laughs> I mean be because that. they're like oh yeah I'm doctors sure. doctors wear gloves now it's one of those things and, right and it,
2: every, everything's everything's intentional except for the occasion when it's not and it's an accident right and it works out <laughs> if
1: it does work out Or if- then you could
2: just say it was intentional
0: <laughs> they're just using shorthand like I mean I, I really don't hold against the filmmakers here for not being up to my level of scientific history <laughs> standards but you know no but
1: i like that we're noticing that <laughs> those are big you know those are like easter eggs
2: take credit take credit for it right Like that's what authors do too sometimes <laughs> did you mean for yes. this and this and this to play together <laughs> and for it to create this overarching theme And yeah you, 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 absolutely yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. good on you for picking that up <laughs>
0: <laughs> like reviewers would come out to review my stories to know what the story was about to be like oh yeah that's what that story's about. You kind of wonder. If, I'm sure
2: it happens to filmmakers too, where you're like,
1: you're being psychoanalyzed by your by your audience.
2: Totally. Sometimes you're so close to it, it's hard to to see what you've done and to like. It's true. Yeah. It, sometimes it takes like a little while after it's after it's been out before you look back at it and go, Oh, I see what I was doing. Now, But at the time, I didn't really realize what I was doing.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's true. Like, what exactly was stewing around your brain, and why, and like how that eventually produced the shape of a story.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. All right. I'm going to read this last section here with preparations for the wedding completed. Henry is happy with Elizabeth. They are to marry as soon as Waldman arrives. Victor rushes in saying that Waldman has been found strangled. Henry suspects the monster. The monster enters Elizabeth's room, causing her to scream. When the searchers arrive, they find Elizabeth unconscious. The monster has escaped. Maria's father arrives, carrying his drowned daughter's body. He says she was murdered, and the villagers form a search party to capture the monster. During the search, Henry is attacked by the monster. The monster knocks Henry unconscious and carries him to an old mill. The, the villagers hear his cry and find the monster has climbed to the top, dragging Henry with him. The monster hurls the scientists to the ground. His, his fall is broken by the veins of the windmill, saving his life. Some of the villagers bring him home while the rest of the mob set the windmill ablaze with the monster trapped inside. At Castle Frankenstein, Henry's father celebrates the wedding of his recovered son with a toast to a future grandchild.
2: Yeah, windmill scene was the one that made me think of Sleepy Hollow immediately. Um, that that toss uh, I, was pretty comical to me because it's such it's, yes, it's, it's such a dummy <laughs> being tossed, and and it looks so funny. Like the arms, I feel like the arms were backwards or something as it's tossed. Like this is not convincing at all. <laughs> And then it so lands good. on the so it lands on the thing, and it looks so like weightless as it lands, and then it falls to the ground, and then all of a sudden it's backwards him, and it's it reminds me of something you'd see in a comedy these days where they're where they're <laughs> yes. leaning into the fact that you can tell it's it's fake.
0: Was this like the the origin of the pitchfork mob stereotype or trope about the you know the torch carrying villagers well, going to
2: go burn? You know, I, unfortunately, I think that was a real thing. <laughs> I think this is oh, something no. people really did. Uh, oh
0: no, that's <laughs> horrifying. So of might probably have some practical. It gets dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ooh.
1: Yeah, but I think yeah. that you're that that there is a sort of trope that's been created for just like a, vi- a villagers with the torches is is a thing now, and I would think I would think it's probably at least early on, you know, in in that the life cycle of that trope. Yeah,
2: like an early version of it, and then you know, as much as I'm giving them crap for the the um the way the body looked. There was a shot when they pull back from the flaming uh, windmill, and I'm pretty sure it was all miniature, um, and it was on fire, and then you there was actually little miniatures of all the people in the crowd that had little torches they were holding. They were on fire, <laughs> and I thought that was actually really cool because I, I was looking at it, and it held long enough for me to notice that none of them were moving, but if you're not, like, staring at it, you wouldn't notice that, and you would kind of just think that this was, like, a w- really pulled-back shot of this incredible c- scene. Um, So at times it looked really good. There are other moments where they would go into this like mountain set and the same thing with the grave set where you could see the like rippling of whatever like texture of the backdrop there was. And I was like, oh, this is really taking me out of it where you could tell it was not (laughs) it was not sky you were
1: seeing. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the time, the thing that doesn't work with me and something I think people realize more and more as time went on, I'm sure they realize it in this time. And it just was like, you know, they were constrained by their by their studio space. But If you don't, those backdrops are great. And yes, when you move them further back, you have to make them bigger. But the more distance you have, the more depth you're getting in the frame because it feels like sometimes when you look at it, you can almost squint your eyes and it feels like they're just standing, they're almost up against a wall or something. Yeah. And whenever it feels like that and you don't have that depth in the frame, it just loses some of that cinematic quality of what you're looking for.
2: Yeah. I I mean, like we've talked about like differences in technology and what you're viewing it on too um now but the the counterpoint to that is that film is film and when you saw it projected it was good quality even back in the day right yeah so you probably could tell these things if you saw it for the most part depending on the
1: quality of the print and that kind of thing for sure yeah yeah one of the things that does kind of pull me out some of the time when i watch um classic films is the sound quality I've always find it. Sometimes it's difficult to catch what they're saying. I had to turn on subtitles. Yeah. In the crowds. because And it, it just has to do with the, the audio technology of the, of the time.
2: Yeah. You know, oh, that reminds me. I wanted to, speaking of audio, I thought there was an audio motif they were going with where it started out in the start of the film where, um, you kept hearing this, like knocking on the, the coffin. And it sounded to me like they had a microphone inside the coffin, or maybe they just like later on did it, like overdubbed it with the sound of something but um it evoked the idea that you were like inside the coffin hearing the shovel hitting the hitting the wood and then multiple times in this film people are pounding on doors and there's this like mysterious pounding you don't know what it is and i wonder if they're just trying to evoke that like knocking on death's door i don't know like is there something going on there because i felt like they yep. kept coming back to that sound over and over again
1: I mean, I could definitely see that. I also, it also like thumping makes me think of heartbeats and stuff yeah. as well. So maybe there's something there with that. Um, I Speaking of sound effects, I've read that this is the first, that famous thunderclap at a castle thunder ah. sound f- effect. I read that this is the first time it was ever used. And it's gone on to be like one of those sound, yeah. those reused sound effects. That- there,
2: There's a sound uh, that we were, so we were recording one time and there was this like perfect peal of thunder on James's audio. And I think we even put it in the episode that it was on. And then I maybe, maybe, re- yeah, <laughs> yes. maybe we reused it in another episode, but I was going to say, I think this is a perfect project to, to include it again, because uh, yeah, that, that the, the, the power of heaven, the heavens needs to be in this piece i think
1: do so you just want to drop it in right now sure right? yeah go ahead
2: <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can i say it's
0: alive and then have
2: it happen?
1: oh yeah do it
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's alive <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> i hope that comes out i'm excited
0: <laughs> um i it's interesting like i find this movie really 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 effective horror in how it frames what happens to the monster for the most part. Like, in, in some ways, I find it really impro- appropriate to see the monster as the protagonist. Um, because when he's first created, you know, um, what's his name? Non Igor, Fritz. Fritz tortures him with the torch. And, like, you can see that, like, he develops a fear of fire. And at the very end, then we see him die by fire. Yeah. Um, and just the whole way the movie is framed is very um, tragic. And in some ways, like, you just see this monster live this life of unspeakable cruelty that um, from everyone he meets except for the girl that he eats into the water, and then meet this in where everyone confronts him with the thing that he's most afraid of in the entire world, and that'd be kind of how he goes out. Um,
2: you just set off a connection in my head. Oh, go for it. <laughs> um, uh, so in Game of Thrones, uh, which we have covered the first book on the, on this podcast. Um,
1: so A Song of Ice and Fire.
2: Yeah, Song of Ice and Fire. The Hound is tied to Sir Gregor Clegane, who is very uh, Frankenstein's monster in sort of his his what ends up happening with him, but the hound is terrified of fire which he is then confronted with. Um, and I wonder how much Martin was playing with that because he's of a similar age to Stephen King, probably grew up on similar things, and maybe the, the universal monsters. People have already pointed out that Roose Bolton is very vampiric, and a lot of those, I mean, the werewolves of the of House Stark and the, the wolf, you know, they're almost wolfmen in and of themselves. So there's, you know, kind of playing with a lot of these universal monsters. And again, we just see the effects in ways that you wouldn't expect getting into all the other media. Oh, so. I think those are
1: definitely r- legit references he was making. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. it's cool.
0: I it's funny because like um after we see the monster die, like for me, the rest of the movie is like unnecessary.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's like one scene after with seeing Henry, and I'm like, yeah, I don't care about Henry, I don't
1: care if he survived.
2: Oh no. <laughs> like,
1: yeah. yeah. Yeah, just fade to black from the lighthouse from <laughs> yeah. the uh, windmill or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I was
2: surprised, I was shocked when when he ended up living at all. Yeah. Like I, thought that, I thought he needed to die by the hand of his creation. I thought that we were going to get that. He deserved but, it, but, you know. He, he kind of deserved it, yeah.
0: In another adaptation. <laughs> we know that Mary Shelley let him die, like, before the monster does, so.
2: <laughs> I wanted to ask you, James, I don't know if you saw this in your research anywhere, but I was wondering if this movie is referencing, because we, we heard about stage productions being made even early on in, like, the 1820s um, of this book. And how that, if if that's something that continued to go on, which I assume it did, there must be a history of producing this novel as an adapted um, play. And so right. I'm wondering if you're leaning into that, because you said he has this background in stage, right? And how he might be leaning into the versions. And then, was that where we saw the assistant get created? Because I can it's imagine possible. a role of the assistant being something that they would want to put in a play, um, all that
1: Part of me wonders if that's why they sort of shirked the the correct credit for Mary Shelley. Mm. Because supposedly the screenplay for this film is based off of the play that oh. that existed before this film. Okay. Frankenstein is a 1931 American pre-code science fiction horror film directed by James Whale, produced by Carl Lamel Jr. and adapted from the 1927 play by Peggy Webling which in turn was based on Mary Shelley's 1818 Frankenstein or the p- modern Prometheus.
2: Okay, so yeah, it's I think there's kind of a game of telephone that goes on mm-hmm. there too. Like yeah. Maybe maybe the guy didn't read the novel. Maybe he just adapted it based on this play he saw.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's probably the correct. Apparently the play was uh, adapted by John L. Balderston, and the screenplay was written by Francis Edward Farrow. And Garrett Ford. Who among them had read the novel? <laughs> That's always my question. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. I mean, and
2: this is one of those stories, like, we talked about, like, uh, well, like, Snow White is an example where it's so old. I mean, and Snow White is much older than, than this, but, like, yeah. it's gone through all these different, well, yeah, I guess, I, I don't know. Didn't we, didn't we say that even at the time the Brothers Grimm put it down, it was already, like, an old tale?
1: Oh, 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 oh. I thought you meant the uh, Walt Disney animated. I was like, that was kind of the 30s. No, 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 I meant the original (laughs) tale. My
2: point is that it's this old, old story that has gone through so many adaptations. And each adaptation itself can be the thing that someone experienced and then is reacting to and... Um, you know, the the the, the, the tail of this thing is just so big and, and it's is everywhere and we talk about influential people in horror, um, that's why
1: Mary Shelley is one of the most influential of all time.
0: It's kind of a Frankenverse going on.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Really, yeah. And <laughs> then you start to talk about the universal verse and it gets bigger yeah. and bigger. <laughs> I do have to mention, just because I find it kind of hilarious and you don't at me, but the uh, <laughs> they tried to like recreate a universal horror universe like ba- because of the success of the mcu and they were oh, building it no. up and there was like this dracula film that came out that was not oh, very yeah. good and then they were doing the mummy with tom cruise and it just like it, i think they had like uh johnny depp was going to be the invisible man and uh russell crowe was going to be dr jekyll and mr hyde or something I, I can't remember what he was going to be but there was all these connections that they were making and the way that it just like crashed and burned and never never turned anything is unfortunate, but it also seemed like it was ill advised. It didn't seem like it was going to live up to the old Universal uh, monster <laughs> sort of criteria.
2: I think it all comes down to you got to make good movies and you, yeah. you got to tell good stories, and if if you can't put the cart before the horse, and it seems like if you start planning this. Extended universe, like maybe make a maybe start out with the first movie and make it really good first before you start nail down a couple of good ones. Planning all the other movies you're gonna make. (laughs) I mean, the MCU started with Iron Man, which like maybe maybe over time hasn't held up as being like the greatest of those movies, but is a pretty good movie even today. And you go back and watch it, and that's why MCU is what it is, right? Like because it started on solid foundation, Uh,
1: pretty solid. Yeah, I would say, yeah. We, well that's a conversation for another <laughs> different time different yeah. conversation yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you want a good laugh though the when they released the trailer originally for the mummy with Tom Cruise the person who uploaded it uploaded a version that didn't have any background audio or soundtrack and so it's literally there's a moment where Tom Cruise is tumbling around in a plane <gasps> and it's just his like his like isolated scream <laughs> and it's incredibly funny. So Google that and see if you can find it because it's amazing.
2: Wow. So this is something
1: that, like millions of people saw because they uploaded it to YouTube. <laughs> a lot of people saw. I think they I think they changed it pretty quickly, but you can still find it and it's wow. amazing. <laughs> That's pretty funny.
0: <laughs> so so when we're talking about the Frankenverse, can I ask a tangentially related question that um, is very important for me to hear your opinion on? I, I'm, I'm trying to like make up a game here. Like maybe I'll call it like the, the Franken game or something. Okay. But let's, let's pretend that you are in Frankenstein's lab and um fritz will go out and steal you one body part or organ of your choice and you will gain the powers of whoever owned that thing um but you will also but the thing is also going to give you criminal um tendencies so for example Mm. you could get like stradivarius's wrists and like become a great violinist but you'll be be an evil violinist and like you'll have evil hands that will sometimes do evil things so my question for you is: Which body part are you going to go have Fritz steal for you and get the wrong one?
1: Right. You know we should get... not. We should probably not lean into genitalia. We should probably <laughs> no. <lean into> <laughs> genitalia are off the table.
0: <laughs> Young Frankenstein did that. It's already covered. We're good. So yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'll start with something just like I'll be. I'll take uh, Michael Jordan's feet. <laughs>
0: Yes, So you're going to have, like, super basketball jumping abilities. Yes. But your feet will also have criminal tendencies. So do you, do you have yeah, any ideas uh, my, of what criminal tendencies your feet are going to have? Uh,
1: I don't know. Yeah,
2: my, my question is, are the criminal tendencies coming from someone else? Like, where are the criminal tendencies coming in from? Well, it's, it's, it's all from?
0: because Fritz stole the wrong one. He had a jar oh. of Michael Jordan's feet. So he's going to steal the wrong jar and put them on you, and, you know, and you will get the powers. This is not a logical game. It's a it's I, a I, I see what's
2: happened with Fritz. Okay, I get yeah. Getcha.
0: Okay, so Fritz is the is doing the job. So yeah,
1: you know. yeah. <laughs> I mean, Michael Jordan has a notable shoe brand as well. So I think with the <laughs> criminal tendencies of the feet, maybe I'll end up with a strong business or something. <laughs>
2: An evil uh, business. So I was I was going to say uh, uh uh Stephen
1: King's uh
2: hands, I guess <gasps> because he types yeah, apparently he just typed so fast cuz he writes so many novels.
1: I totally changed my answer. Okay, go ahead. I want I want Roger Deacon's eyeballs.
2: <gasps> oh. Okay, explain.
1: Because I want to see the world the way he does. Deacon, that, Deacons that.
2: is a, the cinematographer behind uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. He works with uh, the Coens. He did Villeneuve uh, a lot. Villeneuve yeah, a lot. He
1: worked with everybody, really. Yeah. Yeah.
2: He's done a lot of like iconic movies that I'm drawing blanks on.
0: But you'll know, you, you also be evil eyeballs. So I mean, you will be. Yeah. I don't know, you,
2: you won't get his eyeballs. You'll get somebody else
0: <laughs> stealing people's credit card numbers without meaning to, and like, right. you know, <laughs> I was thinking I want to go for like Chris Hemsworth's hair.
1: He's got a nice, Nice. like,
0: scalp transplant and have, like, really beautiful long blonde Thor hair. But then, you know, the hair will be evil somehow.
1: Right. Probably, like... I think if you have his hair, though, his muscles just start to develop on your body. So, you become insanely... It's
0: terrifying. (laughs) It's horrible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) You're very, very swole, you know? Yeah.
2: (laughs) Okay. Uh... Well, <laughs> that's quite a game to end on, I think. Uh, that's perfect. Um, do we want to, are we ready to cast our vote? Is there anything else we want to talk about before we move into the vote?
1: I think I'm good. Yeah, let's, let's get into the vote. So
2: uh, for me, like, this was fun. Like, seeing this movie, um, it, it was better than I expected it to be, honestly. Um, my expectations for it were creepy movie uh, that maybe didn't really hold up as far as being creepy today, but I could tell was at the time scary. Iconic monster performance. Um, but that would be about it. But instead, um, it was it was all of that plus empathy for the monster I didn't expect, um, plus that German expressionist filmmaking inspired I should say, filmmaking technique that you were talking about that felt modern to me. Um, I could see the artistic eye behind it. So there was a lot of cool stuff going on. Um, but when it all comes down to it, like just can't really hold up to Mary Shelley's work. Um, it's such a such an iconic novel in the history of literature and the history of genre um it is you know this movie owes a lot to it even if if we you know as we've talked about maybe it's you know a few steps removed um so i gotta give it up to to mary shelley uh, she she takes it for me yeah
1: I don't blame you. Like, I agree that the film doesn't quite hold up to Mary Shelley's work, but I have to be what I think will be the contrarian here and, and say I'm going to go with the film because of the film history built yeah. into it. You
2: almost have to, right? Like or someone will take away your filmmaking credentials. <laughs> if right, you don't. right. But so much
1: <laughs> notable, like, right? Like it is very influential on its own. People know Frankenstein potentially more from the film than they do from the, from the book and, and Boris Karloff's uh, performance is a lot has a lot to it, and then James Whale's like, yeah, his his like modern sensibilities what would become sort of the trend going forward it, for sure for for the next like 20, 30 years, and then is now still referenced heavily. I like the idea that you'd go to like full sail to
2: to, to go into your to school you teach at, and you'd like go to sign in, and all of a sudden your your card wouldn't work, wouldn't scan. I'm rejected. And they're yeah, like, been... no, sorry, you you no longer are allowed in this building. <laughs> You're out of here. We heard that episode. I was like, no. <laughs> All right, Rachel, uh, you, you have the tiebreaker. Yeah,
0: I, I've been sitting here pondering whether or not James has already committed an eyeball theft that we should know about um,
2: <laughs> <Right>.
0: <laughs> because um, this conversation has helped me appreciate this movie on like a whole new level. Like I think that, um, you know, I just want to give you both a big thank you for um, really pulling out like what's beautiful about this movie and what's revolutionary about it and just some things that... Um, um, I just never considered about the filmmaking of it. Um, I, I feel like I learned a lot. It's really, really cool. Um, I went to this movie with kind of a similar frame of mind as Luke, which is that like I expected it to be fun. But I, I had a pretty low standard because I was like, it's 100 years old. Like, um, yeah. I know. And, and sometimes with those really iconic movies, like, because you've seen so many other transformations and references on it, it can be hard to appreciate what it is because it can seem simple compared to like the transformations that come after it. Um, So I I don't regret watching it. I definitely think that I'd recommend if you haven't seen it, then see it. But for me, the standard I am using for making my decision is like, would I see it or read it again? And I think seeing it once, I feel like I've kind of seen it. Um, I I would read the novel again. Like I've read it, I think two or three times in my life. And I think I would, I can see myself reading it again someday and revisiting it. So I think that I'm going to have to be on team novel for this one. Although that's not a diss on the movie because it's great. So see them both. But
1: yeah, <laughs> that metric is a good is a good way because I would much rather reread the book as well. But I'm going to I'm going to stay in my in my yeah. film camp on this one. And uh, no, I
2: think it's, it's I think film. it's yeah, I think it's <laughs> fitting that somebody gives credit yeah. to the film. I can never I can never knock yeah. you for that. Uh, well, I'm so glad that you got a lot out of this. And, uh, you know, I, I feel that way all the time uh, diving into these movies. And I think I've only developed my own ability to see this stuff over time. Um, and so it's always a lot of fun. And, and I think our listeners, those who have been with us for a long time, uh, I think they also like that the same kind of thing you were talking about. Right. Um, I, that's my hope at least. Um, so could you let our listeners know, um, where to find your writing and you online? Because I do recommend if you like Frankenstein, you should read Rachel's work. (laughs)
0: Uh, Yeah, thank you, Luke. Um, You can find me on Twitter at Rachel K. Jones. That's R-A-C-H-A-E-L-K-J-O-N-E-S. And my website has the same name, rachelkjones.com. If you're a Frankenstein person, uh, this is like kind of your speed and you want more like that. Some of my stories you should definitely check out. There's one called The Greatest One-Star Restaurant in the Whole Quadrant, which is about cannibal cyborg food trucks. And you would definitely get a kick out of it. It's good times. Um, there's also, um, a really great anthology that just released called, um, Tales from Menaris, which is stories that are in tribute to Ursula K. Le Guin, um, that I've got a story in, um, that features local Portland authors, which is pretty awesome, all writing because she was from the city and all writing kind of in her tradition. And that has a story in it that I don't want to spoil too much, but also involves dissection and some body weirdness and, um, but yeah, you should go enjoy that. So yeah, please follow me and check out my stuff.
2: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Rachel. This was a lot of fun uh, for the entire journey through Frankenstein's lab and through the creation and the galvanism of of this uh, of this body being brought to life. Uh, it's been it's been a joy. So thank you for for joining us.
0: Can, can I leave the basement now? You can me. Uh, yeah, I guess we'll let. <laughs> um, <allow it.
2: laughs> <yes. laughs> Thanks so much, Rachel. It
0: was great to be here. <laughs>
2: So if you enjoyed this episode and our coverage of Frankenstein in general, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. I know on Apple Podcasts, we are creeping closer to 100 reviews. That's just an arbitrary number that I've been looking at for a long time and really hoping to get to. So um, just a little extra push. If you haven't left us a review on Apple Podcasts and that's the way you're listening, please do it.
1: And be sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at InktoFilm. Uh, recently started up a TikTok as well, so you can check us out on there. Adding to film on all of them.
2: If you would like to support this podcast even further, if you really appreciate what we do and you would like to get some extra content or maybe some merch, uh, we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash ink to film. And on there, you can get all of our bonus episodes, which we release monthly and we do other adaptations. So like, say you listen to this version of a, uh, this Frankenstein film and you wondered, what would they think about another version of Frankenstein? Maybe the one with Robert De Niro, which is... I. I reportedly closer to the novel. Um, that's the kind of stuff we cover over on Patreon. So check it out um, for as little as two bucks a month. You can get access to tons of
1: bonus content. And thank you to Mark van der Meulen for the use of our intro and outro music.
2: All right, that's going to be a wrap on Frankenstein. Uh, we are excited to announce that we will be covering The Black Phone Uh, which is a Joe Hill short story has been recently been made into a brand new movie. So we're going to be going from the thirties to a modern film. Um, The only reason that wouldn't be what we covered next week is if for some reason we can't watch it in the theaters, like they take it out of the theaters, assuming that hasn't happened and we're able to watch it, we will be covering it. So look for that next week and we'll be covering the son of Stephen King. If you didn't
1: know Joe Hill. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it that I've heard good things about the Scott Derrickson film too. Cool. All right. That's going to be it. So until next time, keep adapting.